0: Well last week Dave gave you an introduction to Daniel and set up the historical context. I'll just review a little bit. Daniel's going to give us an overview of human history from this point forward. Of course the Bible has already been written to this point that gives us the history of past. So let's just do the past and then we'll talk a little bit about the future at the time of Daniel. So Daniel's written in the Babylonian period, the exile period, which began at 605 bc which is when the first capture took place the first siege of jerusalem there are actually three sieges that took place 605 and then another one in the middle of 586 and 586 bc is when there was the whole place was decimated and hundreds of thousands of people killed and basically israel was made a vacant lot so that's that's the time period that we're in here, and Daniel is is growing up in uh, Babylon. What's happened before then, you know, is Genesis, of course, Abraham being the key character, roughly 2000 B.C. And then Moses, the next main character, roughly 1500 B.C. And then you had the period of self-governance, where the people went into the land, and they had rule of law, consent of the governed, and private property, three pillars of self-governance. And they did that for a couple of centuries, and then decided, uh, we want a king. And God told them, I'm going to judge you by giving me what you asked for, which is one of God's primary ways that he judges us, is by giving us what we ask for. And so they ended up with kings, and of course you know it started off okay, and that's roughly a thousand BCs when the monarchy begins. And then it ends up dividing very quickly into Israel, the northern ten tribes, and Judah and Benjamin, the southern two tribes. In 722 B.C., the Assyrians come in and capture Israel, and they're no more. They, they disperse to the earth, really never came back together until in the 20th century, 1948. And then Judah and Benjamin are threatened by the Assyrians, and maybe you remember Hezekiah getting the uh, guy speaking over the wall, and they say, don't talk to us and In Hebrew, use Aramaic so everybody can't hear you. And the guy uses Hebrew because he wants everybody to be scared. And Hezekiah goes and puts the, the letter before God and says, what do I do? And, of course, Hezekiah had built a tunnel to bring water into the city. You can still go through that tunnel today, Hezekiah's tunnel, if you go to Israel. It's one of the more amazing archaeological finds in Israel. But God fought on behalf of Hezekiah, and the Syrians did not take Israel. But here we are now, and the Babylonians are going to take Israel. And Dave went through the prophecies of Jeremiah, who is one of three prophets during this time period. Jeremiah was the primary prophet telling people, if you don't repent, you're going to be invaded. And the specific thing he wanted Israel to do is very interesting. Keep your contract, your uh, treaty, with Babylon. Don't trust in Egypt. That's one of the main things... God tells Israel after they leave Egypt with Moses, don't ever come back to Egypt. Don't trust in Egypt. You're always going to be inclined to go back to Egypt. The strong power of the earth at that point in time, don't do it. Well, of course, they rebel against Nebuchadnezzar. And Nebuchadnezzar comes in and sieges them and takes people back. The first wave, they just take rulers, young men with great capabilities to put in his court among some other things, some treasures and so forth. But Israel doesn't learn the lesson. So that's the historical context up to this point. And then Daniel is going to roll out and say, here is human history from this point forward. So it's very much a companion book to Revelation. There's a very significant difference in that. In Revelation, we're told, we're supposed to see these events and understand and do. Hear, understand, do. And, of course, the main point we took from that that Revelation makes is no matter what happens in the future, no matter how crazy things get, God's still in control. He authorizes everything that happens, and he just wants us to do one thing, and that's be a faithful witness in the face of death, any kind of death, rejection or persecution, any any kind of resistance. Just be a faithful witness, and that was kind of the story of Revelation. Daniel's a little bit different in that it tells us what human history is going to be, But instead of saying, understand from this, it kind of implies that people really aren't going to get this for a while, at least the part about being at the end times. But it gives us Daniel, who is an amazing example of what it means to be an overcomer, which is what Revelation wants us to do. A nikeo, a victor, a conqueror, a winner, somebody who accomplishes in life what God gave us to accomplish. And so... It's really the same message and the same format as Revelation and not surprisingly has a lot of overlapping prophecies. So we're going to get into that soon as to what the future is going to be and we're going to get the same basic forecast of what the future is going to be multiple times. But let's just dive in here. I think Dave stopped in verse 8 and we'll overlap there. Daniel chapter 1 verse 8. But Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself with the portion of the king's delicacies nor with the wine which he drank. Therefore he requested of the chief of the eunuchs that he might not defile himself. Now God had brought Daniel into the favor and goodwill of the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord the king who has appointed your food and drink. For why should he see your faces looking worse than the young men who are your age? Then you would endanger my head before the king. So Daniel said to the steward whom the chief of the eunuchs had set over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, Please test your servants for ten days, and let them give us vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance be examined before you, and the appearance of the young men who eat the portion of the king's delicacies. And as you see fit, so deal with your servants. So he consented with them in this matter and tested them ten days. And at the end of the ten days, their features appeared better and fatter in flesh than all the young men who ate the portion of the king's delicacies. Thus the steward took away their portion of delicacies and the wine that they were to drink and gave them vegetables. As for these four young men, God gave them knowledge and skill and all literature and wisdom. And Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams." Now, at the end of the days, when the king had said that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. Then the king interviewed them, and among them all, none was found, like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore, they served before the king. And in all matters of wisdom and understanding about which the king examined them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and astrologers who were in his realm. Thus, Daniel continued until the first year of King Cyrus. And this has... Stories in it that we're very familiar with. This, you get this in you know, elementary school and Sunday school. That doesn't mean it's not still an incredibly impactful story, but it does mean it's pretty self-explanatory. Uh, what well, you see, what's happening here. But we will spend a little time looking at some things here and and seeing what we see. First of all, let's think. Let's look at the eunuchs. So I looked at this word eunuch. It actually means like officer of the court, from what I can tell. The translators are actually bringing in a historical knowledge that the people in the court during this era, in this realm, tended to be castrated males, eunuchs. So that's actually an interpretation. It's not an unreasonable interpretation, though. And if it is the case that Daniel worked for the chief of the eunuchs, it stands to reason that he would be himself a eunuch. Now, if we think about this, Let's just put ourselves in Daniel's place. So you're living in Israel, and everybody around you is telling you Jeremiah's prophecy cannot happen because we have the temple. I think Dave read that last week. Oh, the temple, the temple, the temple. Do not say the temple, the temple, the temple. Because what they were saying is, look, as long as God's temple's here, he's going to protect us so we can do whatever we want to do. So we've got his temple. And it was the same type of thing that they did earlier with the ark. You know, we'll carry the ark out and it will protect us. And God's like, no, no, I'm, I'm not a spirit that can be conjured up by something that you control. That's not how this works. And he tells them through Jeremiah, this is not the way this is going to operate. But that's what everybody else is saying. And in fact, when Jeremiah comes and tells them that's not the way this works, he's abused. And in fact, that he has to be protected. So you're hearing that all around, and then suddenly Israel falls. I'm sure a lot of people concluded that, hey, God doesn't protect us. God didn't keep his promise. I'm sure that was the uh, interpretation of many. And then... He gets captured and pulled out of his house, taken a thousand miles away to another country that he's never been to and doesn't want to go to. He's castrated. And then he's immersed in a foreign culture. And university, You know, statistics are well known about what happens to Christian kids going to universities in our culture today. And they're going to a university where there's campus crusade and there's all kinds of things that you can join that will help you maintain your faith. And a large percentage of them still fall. But they weren't yanked out of their home, captured. Everything they were told about God by the dominant culture turned upside down, castrated, and then forced into a foreign culture. So you put yourself in this guy's shoes. Instead of saying, hey, God let me down, why should I serve him? Well, that's the natural response, right? Instead of saying that, he says, now how can I maintain my purity here? And he goes to the chief of the eunuchs and he says, hey, is there a way that I cannot defile myself? because I have this belief system. And the chief of the eunuchs is sympathetic. Did you catch that? He says, well, I'm for you, but I have to make a fundamental choice whether to accommodate your beliefs or keep my head. And, you know, I'm going to choose my head because the king might find out his orders weren't obeyed by seeing you and I'll lose my head. Now this tells us a lot about how things operated in Babylon right there, doesn't it? And we'll see soon that God is going to call Nebuchadnezzar the king of kings. He's going to be the example of the greatest of kings. And the way God describes that is you are over everything. And, and he was. He decided who lived and who died. He decided who prospered and who didn't prosper. And we're going to see that it was kind of amazing. He had this incredible power, but he's actually a really wise leader. He might not have been all that empathetic of a leader, but he got results. If you don't do what you're told and you lose your head, you know, that's a real clear reward system, isn't it? So then Daniel got turned down. So the next thing he does is goes and appeals to another guy. This time it's not the chief steward. It's the guy that works for him, his immediate boss. So he went first to the vice president, now he goes to the manager. And he goes to the manager, and he knows that this guy can't really make that decision, but he can make a smaller decision. Will you agree to a test? Now, see, this is not such a big stretch, right? Anybody can look bad for a little while. And so he goes and says, would you give us a test for 10 days? Now, this word test is an interesting word. Guess when the first time... It shows up in the Bible. It's Abraham and Isaac. It's in Genesis 22, 1. It says, Now it came to pass after these things that God tested Abraham. Interesting, isn't it? So, Daniel, I'm sure, knew that verse. And he knows what a test is. And he uses the same basic term. Give us a test. Ten days. Ten days is a time in the Bible that seems to be a testing time. In fact, we saw it in Revelation. I'm going to test you for ten days, he said to the A persecuted church test us for ten days and just see and then you decide we'll leave it up to you whoever looks better because he he took some wisdom from what the chief steward told him right What what's the chief steward's main concern how they look so he's like okay how we looks the big deal so let's do a test and at the end of the ten days see how we look and at the end of the ten days they look better so they got what they wanted shrewd guy huh what would we have done most of us I think usually what most of us would do is whine. Isn't that that what we do as humans? Is whine? Well, you learn that as a child, right? You know, if you whine, you get paid attention to And it kind of just never stops. It's kind of the way most of us do. But he's using wisdom here. He learns something, and then he adapts. He makes an appeal. This is actually a good thing you can do as parents. Teach your children to appeal. Instead of wine. Then in verse 17 it tells us for these four young men, God gave them some gifts. And these gifts are very interesting. He gave them knowledge and skill and all literature and wisdom. And Daniel had understanding and all visions and dreams. Now the translators in the New King James at least did a really good job of keeping the same English words with the same Hebrew words. And this word knowledge is Mada, however you say that. M-A-D-D-A-H. And it's the same knowledge that Solomon asked for. And this word skill is not in the list of what Solomon asked for. Skill in all literature and wisdom. But it's an interesting word that shows up the first time in Genesis 3. The the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And so looking through the different places where this word shows up, it seems to me like this word is like discernment. The ability to tell what's true and what's not. What's real and what's not real. So knowledge is, I think, knowledge. That's something that Solomon asked for and had. And this skill in literature and understanding is more like discernment. I can read this literature and I can tell what's true and what's not true. I can pull out of it what's true and what's not true. Which we will see again in a second show up. And then wisdom is the same word that you see in... Solomon Solomon asked for I want knowledge and wisdom and God comes and says because you ask for wisdom and not and knowledge and not riches I'm going to give you both and then this understanding and visions and dream this word understanding is used in the description of Joseph so think of it here you got one guy who's got the wisdom and knowledge of Solomon and the understanding that was embedded in the tree of the knowledge of good and evil but from God's perspective you know, God wanted us to have that understanding, just not that way, right? And the discernment of, of uh, Joseph, the understanding of Joseph in doing visions and dreams. What a guy, huh? Now, someone like that has that much giftedness. What usually happens to them? Somebody that's amazingly gifted like that. Usually, they either get really stuck up on themselves and live an entitled life, or they get lazy and and underperform dramatically because they don't have to try very hard to get ahead, right? And that's, that's usually the two type of things we have. But look at Ezekiel 14.14. 14. This is a really important verse about Daniel. Ezekiel is prophesying. We'll start in verse 12 here. The word of the Lord came to me again saying, Son of man, that's the name that's used for Ezekiel, son of man. When a land sins against me by persistent unfaithfulness, I will stretch out my hand against it. Cause effect. I will cut off its supply of bread, send famine on it, and cut off man and beast from it. Even if these three men, Noah, Daniel, and Job were in it, they would deliver only themselves by their righteousness. So the normal course for God is when there's righteous people in a land, he preserves the whole land because of those people. Jesus talks about this in the New Testament. What illustration does he use of that, that we're supposed to be? Salt. Yeah, salt. A little bit of salt preserves the whole carcass, right? Dead carcasses taste really good. When they're salted and cooked. And if you salt them, they'll stay preserved until they're ready to eat. And a dead carcass that's not preserved is about the nastiest thing on earth, isn't it? Well, our job is to have enough righteousness in a dead carcass world to preserve it. And God is looking for the time when it can be sacrificed to him and he can like it. We're to be living sacrifices. That's part of what we're supposed to do. But in this case, God is saying, even if these three guys, Noah, Daniel, and Job, who are the, like the salt of the salt of the salt, I would just deliver them. That's how bad you've got. Now, What kind of company is that? Wouldn't you like to be in this list? You know, Even if Joe, Alan, and Samuel, wouldn't you like to be on that list? He's in there with Noah and Job. This is the kind of character Daniel had. Even though he had this horrific event happen to him where he could have doubted God, the temple, the temple, the temple, that's what they told him. He instead says, no, I'm not going to defile myself. And he got these tremendous gifts. And instead of getting stuck up, he persevered, yes. Great point. We have Ezekiel, Daniel, and Jeremiah are the three prophets in this era. And so, yeah, you, usually you don't honor someone that's a contemporary of yours like this. You, you wait until everybody forgets all the bad stuff about him, right? That's normally the way this works. And he's a contemporary. That is a great point, Brandon. Yeah, so he, this is an amazing guy right here, Daniel. And so the the point of revelation that we've done, be a faithful witness and don't fear death, This is an illustration of what that looks like in a corrupt culture. So verse 18, then we go on down and we have this uh, time when he's brought in before Nebuchadnezzar. Now this is interesting too. We already see Nebuchadnezzar has a very definitive system of getting his commands obeyed. He's expected to be obeyed. But notice that he doesn't just delegate everything. There's something that he's directly involved in. And that is picking the people that are going to run his kingdom. He's going to personally interview these guys. How many major companies have a CEO that actually interviews the people that are coming into his company? I don't think that's very normal. They usually have the human resources department do that. I just read an article recently that major company CEOs are going on campus to recruit. But they're not actually interacting with the guys making the decision. And and here you've got Nebuchadnezzar, and he's going to interview these guys himself to decide who's going to be in his administration. I've just started reading a book about CEOs that had companies that way outperformed their peers. And the thesis of the book is that the CEOs that are really, really successful, number one, are value-oriented. Number two, they focus on investment decisions, capital allocation. Number three, they focus on personnel placement and training. That's the three things that those leaders do. You know where they could have gotten that from? Nebuchadnezzar. And you'll see, Nebuchadnezzar is one of the great men of the Bible. He doesn't start off so great, but there's not many people who have their letter published in the Bible because it's such a great testimony. And Nebuchadnezzar is one. You know how usually you have the famous football player come give the testimony or whatever? And they always mostly say the same thing. But because they're famous, they get their testimony. Well... Nebuchadnezzar's testimony is in the Bible. That's who who God asked to give his testimony. He's quite an amazing leader. So the king interviewed these guys who have now had three years of training in Babylonian U. And they graduated from Babylonian U. And what they're learning in Babylonian U is the language and the literature of the Chaldeans. Now, Chaldea, maybe you remember someone who's from Chaldea. Does, Does anybody remember somebody that's famous that's from Chaldea? Abraham from Ur of the Chaldees, right? So here we are, and the Chaldeans, and their culture has enveloped Babylon, and we are come full circle here. Because Abraham left, and he's exiled and pulled out from a corrupt culture, and now here here we are with his nation coming back into it again. Uh, The Bible is cyclical. We just keep going through these cycles. And so here we are and we've got the Chaldeans and we're learning their language and their literature. Now, understanding as humans comes through really two things. One is language. Language shapes everything we think. That's how we think. We think mainly in language. And to the extent we don't think in language, we think in stories, which is literature. And the stories that are common in a culture shapes what that culture is. Because stories tell it, teach us what is honorable and what is dishonorable. And the consensus that a culture has about what is honorable and what is dishonorable is what culture is. That's, that's what culture consists of. If you think of the Greeks, they had the, the Iliad and the Odyssey. And the characters in the Iliad and the Odyssey and their willingness to sacrifice to gain accomplishment. And their constant seeking of glory. This totally shaped the Greek culture, which in turn shaped the Roman culture, which in turn shapes our culture. And I'll bet you 80% of us today are going to be glued to a TV tonight to see who has glory and honor, Achilles or Hector. That's what's going to happen tonight. And somebody may die because it's such a violent event. And we'll say, gosh, that's too bad. When's the next game? Uh, because we've just made it where people don't die too often. If they die, if they die too often, then we do something, right? And we have all kinds of versions of this. We have guys driving around a circle going 300 miles an hour because that's what we are. We're Romans. We're going to see that as we, as we go through here. They are learned this language and they understood this literature. They understood what the Babylonians said was glory and honor, but they had discernment. They knew how to pluck out the things that were true and hold on to them and reject the things that weren't true. And as a result, they came out with ten times the knowledge that all the other students and still had their integrity and their belief in the Scriptures. Isn't that cool? Now this should be what we want for all of our kids. And we should be teaching them how to understand stories. If you let your kids see movies, please Help them understand what story is being perpetrated to them and what's being advanced. And tell them what's true and what's not true. No no story will be interesting to anybody if it doesn't have some truth in it. But the very best lie is the one that's 99% true. And they just put a little bit of untruth in there. And if you buy that, you're starting to take the poison. And you just go a little bit down the road at a time. Well, here are these amazing young men resisted. I wish the Bible told us about their mom and their dad and the training they had at home. Or their rabbi that was in their community and their mentors. I wish it did. I think we can infer that these young men had um, incredible influences. But notwithstanding, the source of their wisdom and understanding is something God gave them. We don't know how God gave it to them. Perhaps it was supernatural. Usually the way God gives us blessings is through other people, have you noticed? I'll bet you that this is just as much a testament to their mentors as it is to them. So now we get to chapter 2. This is one of my favorite chapters in the Bible. So let's just uh, blitz through it here. Now in the second year of Nebuchadnezzar's reign, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. And his spirit was so troubled, his sleep left him. Then the king gave the command to call the magicians, the astrologers, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans to tell the king his dreams. So they came and stood before the king. And the king said to them, I've had a dream, and my spirit's anxious to know the dream. Then the Chaldeans spoke to the king in Aramaic, O king, live forever. Tell your servants the dream, and we will give the interpretation. Then the king answered and said to the Chaldeans, My decision's firm. If you do not make known the dream to me and its interpretation, you shall be cut in pieces and your houses shall be made an ash heap. Actually, it's dung heap. However, if you tell the dream and its interpretation, you shall receive from me the gifts, rewards, and great honor. Therefore, tell me the dream and its interpretation. So once again, here we see that Nebuchadnezzar is really, really good at reward systems. You see how clear this is? Anybody confused about what the choice is? They don't have like a whole list of choices, right? Tell me the dream get glory and honor. Don't tell me the dream die and have your house turned into a dung heap. It's real simple now which would you prefer? Now, interesting here that the Chaldeans are the ones speaking, because we we really don't know this much about these Chaldeans, but they're one of the groups of people, magicians, astrologers, Chaldeans. We've seen magicians elsewhere in the scripture, like Pharaoh's magicians knew how to throw their rod down, it would turn into a snake. So they they had occultic powers, it seems. We don't know much about astrologers. Daniel's the only place that that word shows up. But from history, we know that the stars have been things that were studied for a long time. And, and people have gained things from that. We see that in the, in the New Testament when they see the stars and say, oh, a king is born, right? So there's a lot of knowledge about the heavens. These Chaldeans appear to me to be like the chief diplomats, the guys who really understand how to get things done because they're the ones that speak up. And look, look at how wise their words are. Oh, king, live forever. I, I think that's what you say to the king every time you address him. Wouldn't that get cumbersome? I think I'm going to try that at our company, though, just uh, just to see how it feels. You know, oh, oh Tim, live forever. You know <laughs> mean? I think I think it would just be kind of fun to see. So, any but anyway, they start with that, and they say, "Tell your servants the dream, and we will give the interpretation." And, of course, he says, <laughs> Now I know you're stalling because you don't understand what I'm saying. But, you know, they're, they're trying to d- get a diplomatic solution here. Verse 7, this is the appeal now. They understand appeal. Maybe d- Daniel is uh, wise like the Chaldeans. Let the king tell his servants the dream and we will give his, his interpretation. So they're going to try again. And then the king answered and said, I know for certain that you would gain time. So you're stalling because you see my decision is firm. If you do not make known the dream to me, there's only one decree for you. For you've agreed to speak and corrupt words before me until the time has changed. Therefore, tell me the dream, and I shall know you can give its interpretation. So this is not a happy time for the Chaldeans and the magicians and the astrologers. The Chaldeans answered the king and said, "There's not a man on earth who can tell the king's matter. Therefore, no king, lord, or ruler has ever asked such things of any magician, astrologer, or Chaldean. You're being unreasonable, king. We, we've given you a chance to be reasonable. Now you're being unreasonable." It's a difficult thing, the king requests. There's no other who can tell it to the king except the gods whose dwelling is not with flesh. We, we can't do this. No, you're, you're, not, you're asking us something that's impossible. For this re- reason, the king was angry and very furious and gave the command to destroy all the wise men of Babylon. So he's going to do it. So the decree went out and they began killing the wise men. So they start killing them. And I'm sure that they're going about it kind of slowly thinking, you know, the king gets like this sometimes. <laughs> Maybe we just kill a few. Who who do you not like? Lee. Okay, well, get him first. And we'll just see if, you know, we can kind of slice a few at a time and see if this will kind of wear off, okay? And so then they sought Daniel and his companions to kill them. So I guess they went to him and said, Hey, sorry, you're going to have to be killed. You know, give us a day that's convenient for you. And so then with counsel and wisdom, Daniel answered Ariok, the captain of the king's guard. Ariok, obviously, he doesn't like this command either. He had gone out to kill the wise men of Babylon, and he answered and said to Ariok, the king's captain, Why is the decree from the king so urgent? And I looked at this word, and it's kind of like the idea of hasty or rash. So why is, this, why is the king saying something so rash? I mean, killing all of his wise men? He went to a lot of trouble to get all these wise men. Now, look, I've got, I've got a Ph.D. at Babylonian U. And I, I've gone through this and he interviewed me himself. Now he wants to kill me? What, what's up with the king? What, what is happening here? So uh, Ariok made the decision no to Daniel. Okay, here's what happened. So Daniel went in and asked the king to give him time that he might tell the king the interpretation. And I get the impression here that this is like he asked some of the top guys to just stall a little bit, because I don't think I don't think actually he went in front of the king here because of the way the king reacts when when he actually gets in front of him. So talking to the king, talking to the top people appear to me to be the same thing. So then Daniel went to his house and made the decision known to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, his companions, that they might seek mercies from the God of heaven concerning this secret so that Daniel and his companions might not perish with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. Let's ask God for help. Now, this is usually the last thing we do, right? But it's the first thing Daniel did. Maybe in this case there were not many other options available. But Daniel goes straight to God and says, Man, we need some big help here. So they did. And then verse 19, the secret was revealed to Daniel in a night vision. Daniel then... Because he got this vision, says this. He blessed the God of heaven. And Daniel answered and said, when God tells him, this is what he says back. Blessed be the name of God forever and ever. For wisdom and might are his. So Daniel's got this amazing wisdom. And his re- reaction is, you gave this to me. So what a cool guy this is. He changes the times and season. See, I, I I'm in Babylon. That's not what I would have chosen. But God chooses that. So it's okay with me. This must be in my best interest. He removes kings and raises up kings. Nebuchadnezzar, I don't want to be under Nebuchadnezzar. He's a pagan. I want to be under a Jewish king, right? But that's who God raised up. So he put him there. So I'm going to do what I can. right? God, God wants him there. Okay. Well, this, how do I react to that? He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. See, this wisdom and knowledge I have, it's just a stewardship. My decision is not to say, oh, look how wonderful I am. My decision is to say, how do I steward this gift in service to God? Incredible, huh? He reveals deep and secret things. He knows what's in the darkness and light dwells with him. I thank you and praise you, O God of my fathers. You have given me wisdom and might and have now made known to me what we asked of you, for you've made known to us the king's demand. Therefore Daniel went to Arioch, whom the king had appointed to destroy the wise men of Babylon. He went and said thus to him, Do not destroy the wise men of Babylon. Take me before the king, and I will tell the king the interpretation. Now, once again, do you think that all the other wise men of Babylon were Jewish guys that wanted the best for Daniel? If this would have been flipped to somebody else, would they have tried to save Daniel? Probably not. He had an opportunity here to say, don't execute us because we have the answer. Just go ahead and nix all the rest of the guys, and it will all be left to us. That's the normal thing a wise politician will do is eliminate his, his competition while he's at it. But Daniel comes in and intercedes on behalf of the whole crew. See, we're called to be kings and priests. That's what God has actually made us to do. That, that's our assigned position. And if we overcome, the reward we get is to actually be installed in that physically in the new earth. That's the main reward that God asks, sets out for us. But in this life, by faith, we are to be kings and priests. And the priestly function is to intervene for other people. To stand in the gap for them, whether they would repay us or not. And he comes and he says, do not destroy the wise men of Babylon. He saves them all. Take me before the king, and I will tell the king the interpretation. Then Ariok quickly brought Daniel before the king and said thus to him, I found a man of the captives of Judah who will make known to the king the interpretation. This is why I think when Daniel sent the message up, he didn't actually go in front of the king because there's no, there's no particular familiarity here. So he says, yeah, The king probably interviewed lots and lots of people, doesn't remember that many of them, right? The king answered and said to Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, that's his Babylonian name, are you able to make known to me the dream which I've seen and its interpretation? And then Daniel has just one of the best speeches ever. And he's in front of the king. This is probably only the second time he's been in front of the king. First time's his oral exam. Now, let's just think about that for a minute. You get out of college. And your oral exams in front of a guy that beheads you if he doesn't like your answers. Is that pressure? That's some pressure, right? If you, if you fail your oral exams other places, you can just take the class again, right? Is, I don't think. But Daniel's in the presence of the king, and here's what he says The secret which the king has demanded, the wise men, the astrologers, the magicians, and the soothsayers cannot declare to the king. But, and that, that includes him. He says, no, I can't tell you the answer to the dream. But there's a God in heaven who reveals secrets. And he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. So he's already telling him the headline of what the dream's about. Your dream's about what's going to happen in the latter days. And God is telling you this, not me. No, no man can answer. The, The other guys were right. Men can't answer this, but God can. Your dream and the visions of your head upon your bed were these. As for you, O king, thoughts came into your mind while on your bed about what would come to pass after this. And he who reveals secrets has made known to you what it will be. But as for me, this secret has not been revealed to me because I have more wisdom than anyone living. But for our sakes, who made known the interpretation to the king, that you may know the thoughts of your heart. What a a speech, huh? So, no, actually, I don't know. And once again, he's like, yes, I do know. Make me, you know, give me something big. Now, just think about Balaam, which would be the opposite of Daniel. Balaam was a true prophet. He would not speak false words. But what was he trying to do when he was offered a great reward to say something to curse the Israelites? He's like, I I can't violate my prophet office, but I really want that money. How can I have it both ways? And we saw in Revelation that the spirit of Balaam worked its way into one of the churches. And God said, get that spirit out of there. Because you can't be a double-minded believer and please me. You can't be saying, well, how can I have all this and Jesus too? How can I have what the world offers and still kind of have what, what God offers? doesn't work that way. Well, Daniel's not confused like that. Daniel understands. Look, I'm just stewarding my gift, and I'm here to bless you, pagan king who stole me out of my home and castrated me and made me a prisoner and made me go to a university that I didn't want to go to and a job I didn't want to go. Thank you for that, by the way. And I'm here to bless you. This guy's incredible, isn't he? Next thing is going to be the dream, the vision. And I'm going to save that for next time. But I'm going to give you a little overview of what the whole rest of the book is going to be doing. And we'll probably just go over this multiple times. What we're going to be doing is, is seeing the rest of human history multiple times. we're going to see this dream about this statue. It's going to have head of gold, which is Babylon. And it's going to have a breast of silver, which is the Persian Empire. And then the bronze torso, which is the Greek Empire. And then the iron and clay... Legs and toes, which is the Roman Empire, an Eastern and a Western Empire. And then that statue is going to be blasted by a rock that comes out of a mountain that's that's not made by hands. And that's the, the new kingdom that's going to fill all the earth the Millennial Kingdom. So that's the whole rest of human history. Daniel is a book that the liberal scholars always want to date as written very late because it's so plain that these prophecies are accurate that they conclude, well, this couldn't have been written before they happened because there is no actual God and God doesn't give prophecies. So it must have been written late. And when the Dead Sea Scrolls were found... That kind of blew up their argument, and so now they just don't talk about it. From what I can tell, that's what you do when you have a you know an argument that's not good for you. You just don't talk about it. These periods here, the the, the Babylonian period, is going to be for about sixty six more years. And the fact that it's the sixth century and sixty six years could be something that tells us something about number of man that's in Revelation. It's going to be somebody like a Nebuchadnezzar. There's Antichrist is very Nebuchadnezzar-like, even though he's in the Roman era. And we talked about this in Revelation, that this Antichrist kingdom has characteristics of all four of these kingdoms that we're going to, be, that we're going to see. And then in 539, Babylon falls. Uh, Persians come in, they block up the river and go underneath. And that's going to be the handwriting on the wall night that that happens. We'll see later in Daniel. And then the Persians go for about 200 years. And then they fall to Alexander the Great. Alexander the Great, 330 B.C. is when Alexander is you know, said to have conquered the world. And you know, he's 26 when he conquers the world and 32 when he dies. So he had six glorious years where he drank himself into oblivion and died with malaria. Then it's divided to his four generals and that's kind of the Greek period. And by 30 B.C. or so, Rome has swallowed up Greece. And it's been Rome ever since. And then... We're told what happens at the end of the Roman era, which is now over 2,000 years and counting, the Roman era. And at the end of the Roman era, then you have the Great Tribulation, the end of this Roman era, and the Millennial Kingdom, the rock made without hands that fills the whole earth. And that was Revelation, right? And so that's what the rest of this book is going to be telling us about. We're going to have the statue dream, and then we're going to have beast dreams, and we're going to have the furious goat that goes around butting everything that's Alexander the Great. We're going to have different ways to show us the same thing. And again, what it really comes back to is what Daniel already knew. God changes times and seasons. He removes kings and raises up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise because God's in control. No matter what you see happening and no matter how out of control things may look to us, God's still on his throne. So we got that from Revelation, didn't we? What's well, the same story here. And why would that be relevant to a group of people who had been taught the temple, the temple, the temple that will protect you, and now all of a sudden they're ripped out of their home, thousands and thousands of die, probably hundreds of thousands die, and then they're taken to Babylon. Everything they've been told falls away. Why would it be relevant for them to get a message that says God's in control and He appoints times and seasons? It's very relevant, isn't it? So really, Daniel and Revelation are doing the same thing. They're telling the people that are there, including us, look, bad times will come. There are seasons, and you're going to have bad times. And when they come, I let it happen. And I'm not letting things spin out of control. What I want you to do is be a Daniel. Don't fear death and be a great witness. God, thanks for this amazing book and this amazing man and his example. And I just pray that you give us a portion of the wisdom that you gave to him. You've already given us the spirit that is the embodiment of wisdom. And so let us, Lord, let that spirit flow through us that we may live the kind of wise life that Daniel lived. And be faithful witnesses. In Jesus' name, amen.